Well, Merry Christmas. Um, we have said for uh, a few weeks now that this has been the, the Advent season, which may be familiar to some of you um, because maybe you grew up in, in some more sort of traditional liturgical churches. Maybe it's brand new to some of you. But what Advent is, is it's a season of anticipation. It's, a se- it's literally the, the word Advent comes from two Latin words that basically means um, the, the coming of, of an arrival, the, the, the anticipation of an arrival, and that's what Advent is meant to be. And we said insofar as Advent is an anticipation of what's coming, that the actual posture of Advent is not one of cheeriness and joy, but actually one of taking seriously the need for that which we anticipate. It's actually meant to be, in many ways, um, sort of a, not necessarily a, a high and, and um, sort of peak moment in, in the, the church calendar, if you will. It's actually meant to be a low point. It's meant to be a season where we stop and pause. In fact, tradition has it that that's precisely why December 25th was chosen for Christmas is because in much of the world, it falls within the, the winter season. It falls when, when the light, if you will, is beginning to fade. Um, and then it, it falls right on the, the moment, do you realize, here's some hopefulness for you New Jerseyans, um, that, that we're gaining light as of a couple days ago, right? Like, we're, yeah, woot woot for that. Um, we're gaining light. And so right here on on this day um, is intentionally where the Advent season sort of culminates in the, in the full sort of entering in of darkness and then in the dawning of light. And of course, to sort of spoiler alert, to give away the ending, for us, the anticipation is the coming of Jesus into the world. The absolutely mind-boggling truth that God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke galaxies and black holes and quasars into existence with a single word from his mouth, actually came and, and took on a human body. And not just took on a human body and walked out of the mountains fully formed, but took on a human body in the form of a baby, of a screaming child, And not only took on the form of a baby, a screaming child, but took on the form of a screaming baby in the middle of nowhere, not even with accommodations that were sort of normal for that time, but out in a stable where they'd been practically kicked out, um, cast aside too. This is how God chose to come. Throughout Advent, uh, therefore, we take seriously the darkness of the world. We take seriously the fact, and, and it's not that hard in a year like this. I dare say it's not that hard in the few years that we've had. COVID and wars and uh, racial injustice and all, all these things and political unrest and all this stuff, right? Like, man, what a couple years it's been, let alone whatever you've experienced in your personal life. And I know enough standing up here to look out and know the kind of pain and loss and sickness and uncertainty that characterizes a community like ours. And so we we stare that in the face and we take that really seriously. And then we acknowledge that that is precisely why God came. Not in spite of those things, but precisely because of those things 
God came. And so we've been looking specifically at the book of Isaiah and showing how Isaiah, who's writing and and speaking, he's a prophet of God. So he speaks the words of God to the people of God. That's what a prophet was. And he's speaking 500 years before the events of that first Christmas. And what he's telling the people is, if you've been tracking with us over the last number of weeks, is he starts with their sin. He says, look, you're in the situation and the world is in the situation it's in because of humanity's rebellion. That all of the tragedy, that all of the sorrow, that all of the sickness of this world isn't the direct result as though there's a one-to-one between our sin and, and the things we go through, but it's the power of sin that causes all of it. It's the reality of sin. It's the pervasiveness of that sin. And that's where, amazingly, even the brightness and the joy and the good news of Christmas has to begin. Is that all of this is the result of sin. And therefore, all of us are complicit with the reality of the darkness that we see around us. And then he moves into, and yet there is a God who sees that and takes that seriously. And as we've been looking at the last couple weeks, that that God makes some promises that he will come and turn the story around and make right everything that's gone wrong. And last week, we looked at Isaiah 40, which begins with this amazing news to a people who are now sitting in the consequences of their rebellion. And instead of God coming and sticking his finger in their chest and saying, I told you so, like so much human authority does. He comes and counter to all of our expectations, his first word to them is comfort, comfort my people, he says. And then we talked about, if you were with us, you remember the, probably the the Lion King uh, (laughs) analogy, right? Mufasa coming with all of his strength and might and amazingly leveraging all of that, not to swipe away Simba and Nala in their rebellion, but instead to comfort them, to protect them and to restore relationship with the ones who are suffering the consequences of their rebellion. And so God is coming. He he will arrive in the story is what Isaiah is telling us. And yet the question that every text in Isaiah up until now, that the entire Old Testament begs is, but how? How will he make it right? Sure, he's coming. Sure, he's going to arrive into the story. But how can he possibly turn all of the darkness of the human story, all the darkness that we see around us, how can he possibly make right everything that's gone wrong? And the the clearest answer that Isaiah gives, you could argue the clearest answer that comes to us in in the millennia before Jesus actually arrives in the story is right here in what the boys just read in Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah 53, 12. It's it's just one of the high points in the entire Bible. And now (laughs) I have about, I don't know, 12 minutes left. Um, And I studied for this thing like I was giving a two and a half hour lecture. So I'm going to try and somehow um, consolidate the the amazingness of what's here. And, And I just can't think of a better way to do that than just reading what's here. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Or another translation would say, behold, my servant, he will succeed at what I send him for. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Gwenny, would you put the the text up there for us, please? Here's what's extraordinary, the the scrolly Bible. Here's what's extraordinary about this text is, 
right? This is, this is by a prophet, so you can think of this as prophecy. But prophecy in the Old Testament isn't like Jesus' hair will be blonde and then his hair is blonde, right? Um, Jesus' hair definitely wasn't blonde, by the way, um, even though that's what most of our, or like Jesus is gonna do this and then Jesus is like, ooh, um, I gotta do that thing that the prophet said. No, no, no. The better way to think of this is that this is God giving us a job description of the answer to our question, how? God, when you show up, how will you make things right? And God basically creates a job description to say, well, if one were to do all of these things, that one would be the answer to your how. That's the way to think of this text. And so God says, behold, this one, this servant shall act wisely. Again, I think a better translation is, he will succeed at what I said before. Now listen to these words. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. We have already heard about one who is high and lifted up in Isaiah. This is where you have to read scripture with scripture. Do you remember who is said to be high and lifted up in Isaiah? Anybody remember this? Take a chance. Who? Somebody said it. The Lord. Where? Do you remember? It's in Isaiah 6. If you were with us when, when Tyler preached, Isaiah goes into the temple. Remember, he sees the hem of God's garment, of uh, the, the hem of the garment that God is wearing. It's just this little part down here. He sees that, and that's enough to make him undone. And he says, Why? Because I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw the Lord exalted. He was so much greater than me that I was undone, that I had to deal with my sin, with my complicitness in all that I see is wrong around me. Now, now God is saying the servant will succeed. And guess what? He will be high and lifted up. And we say, whoa, whoa, God, that, that's, that's only your place. You're the only one who's high and lifted up. This is your first clue <laughs> that when Jesus comes, there's more than meets the eye. When Jesus comes, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, right? Now that's fancy language to say, Jesus was God made human. And 500 years before that, you have this whisper that every commentator on Isaiah says, this is audacious. This is audacious to say that there is one coming who will be high and lifted up. That's God's place. And if you know the biblical story, maybe a text like Philippians 2, early Christian missionary and teacher, Paul says that because of what Jesus did, that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, such that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You see, Jesus is in the place of God precisely because Jesus was God. And we have a whisper of that here. Wow. Listen though. Check out verse 14. Check out how quickly the tone changes. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he, it says sprinkle in the translation, I think better translation, startle. So shall he startle. He's going to surprise many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told these kings, they see, and that which they have not heard, they suddenly understand. He will be high and lifted up. He will be in the place of God. And his face will be so marred that you forget that he's even a human being. What? What? Wait, God shows up in the human scene. And 
One translation translates these verses very literally and says, he no longer looked like a man, no longer looked human. He was so marred. He was so abused. He was so oppressed. As we get later in this text, there is physical violence that is visited upon this one. And it's so quick. (laughs) The transition is so quick. He will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. He will be beaten and bruised and marred. You won't even recognize him as a human being. Now look, there's no reason to go into all the violence. I know that there's kids among us, but this is shocking. You see, the why of Christmas is that the only, the only way to explain why God would come is his great love. The how of, Chris, of Christmas is the most shocking thing. Because the only how is if God himself in a way, writes himself into the story. And then somehow, like every hero in every actually good movie you've ever seen, figures out a way to absorb the evil around them and to take it within themselves such that others might go free. You look for that theme in every story and every movie that you've ever loved, because I bet it's there. That evil is poured out on one who doesn't deserve it somehow takes it upon themselves. Now, here's the thing. And evil almost always ends up destroying itself when that happens because it's poured out fully on this one who can actually absorb it and then it ends up defeating itself. You know what I think the best example is? Wonder Woman. If you haven't seen the first Wonder Woman by now, everybody says, oh, I, I ruined movies. If you haven't seen the first Wonder Woman, I don't know what to tell you. It was out like many years ago. But remember at the end of Wonder Woman, the guy shoots the thing at her and she does this deal and she takes on herself. And then what does she do? Boom, and she sends it back. And that's how the enemy is destroyed. This is our only hope. It's why every story we tell, we know that the only way, listen, now let's keep going through the passage. He's better at this than me. Okay, who has believed what he has heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, this is like really hard to conceptualize is what those two lines mean. For he grew up before him like a a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, my grandmother used to say (laughs) um, about someone who wasn't particularly attractive, he's not much to look at, right? Um, That's what this is saying. It's saying Jesus, he wasn't much to look at. Again, Jesus' coming is meant to confound every category we have for how the world works, how power works. And honestly, for most of us, mostly to upend our view of God. Because for most of us, God, the high and lifted up one, if he showed up in the human story, would be out for blood. Would be be one who would primarily come in judgment because he's so superior to us. It's just not the image that we get here. We're being set up. Who can believe this? Who can believe that when God shows up, he won't be much to look at? Yet this is the job description. This is how power actually works. This is how sin will be undone. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This is some of the best news that I can give you today is some of you come here with profound sadness. 
maybe like really present with you. Maybe you've lost someone. Maybe you've lost a dream. Maybe you've lost a job. Um, some of you come with, with incredible confusion about what your future holds. Some of you come with just a, a general sense that life is not going how you anticipated it would go. And first of all, to name that, that's grief, right? Grief is not just when a loved one dies. Grief is a more expansive experience for us than that. It's when anything that we hold precious is, is suddenly not available to us. And that could be something like a dream. That could be something like a career. That could be something like a sense of security in this world. It could be relationships that you have or that are broken now. This says... <clears throat> Jesus is acquainted with that. Now, now that is such a light. And, and I don't normally hate on translations much, but this is such an important passage. There's so many different <laughs> interpretations of it that really uh, what's being said there is it's this very precious word in the original language of knowledge. It's a knowing. He knows grief. This is the word, this is the word for deep experiential knowledge of something. In fact, this is the word, let the reader understand, for, for intimacy of a certain kind, right? Like, like, like a, you, you, you know this thing deeply. You know it inside and out. You, you, you've experienced it at a relational, at a, at a deep. Jesus knows grief at that level. There's a, there's a little um, graphic that kept coming to mind as I was thinking through this passage this week. Okay, I know that this isn't super easy to see. This is like variously accredited to like the Brene Browns of the world. Um, but... Uh, it's the different difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Have you ever seen this before? Okay, so this is a person in the pit who's in need. This is you and me, right? In the pit of sin. First thing that we need from God is sympathy and understanding, right? Um, this person is standing at the edge of the pit that we've created and going, it looks terrible down there. <laughs> and I actually care to understand how terrible it is. Tell me what's happening, okay? This is... Um, here's what's really easy to do. Kids, we as parents, we do this to you guys, is you tell us that you're going through something as a kid, and what we can do is we can use our, our age, our superior knowledge of the way the world works, to try and reason you out of the intensity of what you're feeling in that moment. Well, I know you're worried about your test, but your test doesn't actually matter that much. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, no one's looking at your grades in fifth grade or whatever, right? And we can belittle by our superior awareness and by our age, we can belittle the, the real thing that you're feeling. This, that's not sympathy. Sympathy is looking down and saying, I believe that what you're feeling is real. And for you, it's as intense as you're articulating, that you're really in the mess that you feel like you're in, okay? Good parents, you do this. And sometimes I wonder if, if step one for many of us is to believe that God actually looks down and cares about what you're going through. That God is not a cosmically bad parent who says, oh, if you just saw the world at the level that I did, you wouldn't ever worry. Even some Christians, we can believe this. God just wants me to think my way out of the intensity of what I'm feeling in a moment. He just wants me to, to use my my intellectual theological belief to reason my way out of what I'm feeling. No, this is not who God is. God is a sympathetic God. He looks down and he cares to know. This is why we have things like the Psalms where God is saying, no, I invite you to articulate exactly what you're experiencing in the rawness of what it is. 
What's amazing, what this passage is saying is it doesn't just end with empathy though. Because here's what, or sympathy. Sympathy is up there. Empathy is this person who actually goes down there with you in the pit. It's one thing to say from up here, hey, it looks really bad down there. It's another thing to jump down and to get in the pit with that person and to look around and go, yeah, this is brutal. Yeah, that's a long way up. I can understand why that's scary. Christmas story says that God looked down at our situation and he cared to understand it. He looked down and he said, your problem is real. Now, here's what some of us need to understand, right? We need to believe these things about God. Put that graphic back up. We also need to believe that this is really our situation. If we are in, right, if we are in a pit and the water is rising and the mountain ain't coming down, the only hope that we have is something from outside of that pit to come down and to get us. You see that? Where do you see yourself? as you come into Christ. This is why Advent is so important. Because the one who is ready for what God brings really believes that this is where they are. Now that's really humbling. And that might not be, sound like your experience of Christians. Those of you who aren't around church a lot, you say, wait, Christians are the ones who are supposed to be the ones in the pit. They feel like the ones shouting down at me. They feel like the ones with their back to me, to the problems of this world. They feel like the morally superior ones. No, the only way into this thing is to say, I'm the one in the pit. I'm the one in need. And if you've experienced something other than that, you've experienced something other than what the Christmas story says the heart of Christianity actually is. This says that Jesus gets in with the pit. It says he is, he is well acquainted with grief. This is why to me, um, the most important moment, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus in the entire Gospels, is a moment where Jesus' very best friend, as far as we can tell, um, in the way the story told, Lazarus, dies. And Jesus goes to the tomb. Now, I'll give you the spoiler. It ends with Jesus raising him from the dead. It ends with a miracle. Wow, Lazarus, he's raised. Amazing. But the most important moment in the gospel to me is that Jesus pauses before the miracle and you know what he does. Yeah, it's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus weeps. Jesus wept. Now, I always thought that was interesting. I thought that that was theologically fascinating. But for me, my mom died. Uh, it'll be two years in, in March. And when my mom died, very, uh, very quick battle, uh, hardly a battle with cancer, um, right? Stuff goes on in you. Questions arise in you. Me as a pastor, right? I said, God, where are you in this? What's going on? And the thing, the, the, the little branch on the edge of the cliff that I held onto was not all the theological stuff that I had reasoned my way into. It was those tears of Jesus. It was that pausing in front of the grave that said he was moved by what he experienced. Now he knew, he knew the miracle was on the way. He knew that he was on his way to the cross, that his resurrection was real, that his resurrection would one day be applied to the four corners of the earth and all things would be made new one day. He has full knowledge of that. And yet in the pit, looking around, experiencing the death of a friend, watching the grief of the people there, he didn't give a sermon, he gave tears. 
That was so precious to me. Because not only is God sympathetic toward our suffering, he's empathetic. He, he knows it. He got into it. He stood there and he experienced it. Do you have a category for a God like that? Who is willing to come all the way from heaven's glory and to be, and to be bound in his humanness and to be bound by the emotions that he really and truly experienced. He was moved when he was here. And so the one that we pray to, he knows it. He knows what all of that confusion and darkness and doubt and suffering and pain and loss, he knows what it is. He knows physical suffering. He's acquainted with grief. He's a man of sorrows. That's why he came. That's crazy. Right? When God shows up in the story, we expect him to go, I'm here, right? And some deep voice and to say, you're all done, right? Instead, this is how he comes. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. Do you hear all of that? He got what we deserve. He got what we deserve. His this was for our that. At the heart of what we needed, Jacob's well. At the heart of what we needed was substitution. We needed someone to stand in our place. Because everything that Jesus experienced on the cross, all of the pain, all of the rejection, all of the sorrow of that moment is what you and I rightfully deserve. And look, that's not a, that's not a downer Christian belief. Unless you've totally shut off your soul, and your conscience. You know in your heart of hearts that reality. That if, how many of us, right, feel this as we sit in a church service like this, man, if these people knew who I actually was, these people knew what I did this year. Now, I want to tell you, you might be feeling that because this is your first time in a church for a while. I'm telling you, that's all of us. There's a version of if they knew the real me, oh, let alone if the God of the universe knew the real me. Here's what I actually deserve. Is there one who would come and stand in our place and take all of that upon himself and be worthy to take all that upon himself? Because you see, to take all of that upon himself, it means that there was none for him to take on for himself. You see that? That's what this is saying. This is why this is a unique one. This is why this is a job description that seems by the time it's written and you have Jewish scholars for centuries who are going, yeah, ain't nobody fulfilling this. They probably said it more sophisticated than that. But like, this is, this is too much. This feels like maybe only God could do this. I'm skipping ahead to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. That's so weird. When he makes an offering, when all of this happens to him and he dies in our place, then shall his days be prolonged. What? Another weird verse. Unless you know the story. <laughs> because death does not have the final word. Jesus' suffering does not have the final word. You see, because he was worthy to take all of this upon himself, because even his taking on of our sin was itself a righteous act. He was raised over all of it victorious over all of it. And God prolonged his days. And then it says that God gives him the spoils of his victory. You know what the spoils of his victory are? 
it's us. Not the, not the flashiest spoils of war, right? <laughs> this is what it says. It says before this, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own ways. And yet God has laid upon him what we deserved. One scholar says, in our sin, we are like sheep who have wandered from God's path. We're vulnerable to attack. The guilt of our sin is ready to attack and destroy us at any moment. But then the servant stepped in and took the full force of the attack. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. That's our hope. Because here's the last part of that diagram. Empathy, you know what it's like. But guys, just someone getting in the pit with us is not a rescue. It's nice. It's nice to have someone who gets it. But what we need is someone who can get us out. And that's what compassion, I'd use a different word, but this is someone who knows the way out. And here's the reality. Jesus came all the way from heaven, <laughs> took on flesh, defeated sin and death and darkness itself, rose victorious over it all, not just to be sympathetic, not just to demonstrate his love, though the New Testament says God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he showed his love. He didn't just do it for empathy's sake. He didn't just do it so that he would become one like us such that we would have an empathetic God. No, he came to be savior. And the one who made it all the way into your darkness and shame and the prison of your guilt, the one who made it all the way to rescue you can get you home. Imagine, imagine being in some place where you were confined and someone finds a way in and says, I'm here to rescue you. This is the way out. And you say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's the way out. What do you mean? I just got all the way here. I figured it out. I figured out how to get in. I can get you out. And we say, I don't know. This, this is the moment of decision that Christmas presents in all of our lives. Is the one who came from heaven's glory to a manger in the middle of nowhere, worthy of following, worthy of believing, man, he's the one who knows how to get me home in this life. That's the decision. Step one, make it very simple, is for you to say, I can't do it on my own, I've tried. It's just that simple. I've tried on my own and I can't do it. And Jesus, I need what you give. I need that forgiving. I need my sin to be laid on you like it says this passage actually allows it to happen. I need all that I know deep within me, I'm deserving of. Like, like not the stuff that, that my prideful self thinks I'm deserving of, like the real me, like the, the two o'clock in the morning me that says, oh, what am I? Am I worthy of anything? I need all of that laid on you. And then here's what's amazing. Here's the exchange. He gets everything that we deserve, which means, you know what the exchange is? We get everything that he is. We are sons and daughters. We are beloved of God. We are high and lifted up in God's eyes. We are exalted, right? This is the hope of the gospel. Let those who humble themselves be exalted. Our sin for his glory. That's the gift of Christmas. And just like any gift, right? The one thing is to receive that. Why would we reject that this morning? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the hope of Christmas. Thank you for the joy of Christmas. Thank you for the reality of the substitution that you made possible, Lord. God, as we now come to your table and sing these last few songs together, 
God, we pray that that truth would go within us to places that it needs to go. Maybe, maybe places where we've kind of shut the door from you and said, no, God, you can't have entry here. God, open us up. God, this is the moment of decision. Right here on Christmas Eve, what better time could we have than this? To choose to follow you. Maybe for the first time, maybe again for the thousandth time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.